planet, planet Earth's a rocket wagon train upon a journey. And what if aliens don't fight an actress named Seth Gurney? We're not a bunch of geeks who live in basements, sleep on futons, but who wouldn't stream our podcast if we're calling it Space Croutons. It's an intergalactic, robot automatic, moondust sporadic trip around the sun. It's a totally terrific, proven scientific, freaking fantastic phaser set to fun. It's Space Crew Talk. We think. Get your space suit on. It's pink. We're triple cute. On that you can rely. And once you've tossed your salad in your flying saucer, it's valid to add Space Crew Talk for lunch. With Neil Diamond? Lucy in the sky. I love Neil Diamond. Lucy in the sky. No, not Neil Diamond. With Space Croutons. Hey there, friends. Curdy Clammerwood here. And welcome to Space Croutons. Podcasting from right here in my home-built mobile studio. In the back of an old Appalachian dental examination van. Parked in an ever-changing secret location somewhere in the great wide world. Why do we do this podcast? Why do we call it Space Croutons? Why do we broadcast from a mobile studio in an ever-changing secret location? Well, like my dad used to say, the Y's are at the end of the alphabet. We'll get to them later. Let's just say we have our reasons. And they all have to do with you and what you need to know. In each episode, we'll present stories regarding incidents of strange and unexplained phenomena, of science, fact, and fiction, things that are happening all over the world. And then ask your help in putting together the puzzle pieces so we all see the big picture more clearly. So, if you're ready for the challenge, let's begin with our first story. Something personal that happened to me a while back that set me on this journey to examine the limits of human knowledge in our unlimited universe. We'll call this episode A Bowl, A Bowl, My Kingdom for a Bowl. The opening notes of Justice, an obscure song by local no-hit wonder band The J-Boys, blared from the jukebox, making me look up from spraying disinfectant in the shoes just returned by Betty Joan and Joan Betty, the brittle twins, as they left for their work shift as cashiers at Crop to Shop Grocery in downtown Wicker, county seat of Worcestershire County in the middle of Delaware, or the middle of Delanoware, if you ask the brittle twins, (laughs) but don't. At the jukebox, I saw what I expected to see through the aerosol mist floating around me. Sheriff Marshall feeding quarters into the machine and selecting C-13 over and over, setting up nearly an hour of, I've got to do you justice, baby, you rescued me. I've got to give you credit for setting my heart free. It's my bowling good luck charm, he'd say. It keeps my balls between the gutters and my aim straight and true. (laughs) 
Sheriff Marshall thought that was pretty funny. Commandeering the jukebox with a stack of quarters was standard operating procedure for Sheriff Marshall, and to be honest, some weeks it probably paid half my salary. And Sheriff Marshall always had quarters. One of his duties was to empty the parking meters in Wicker, and he insisted in receiving a portion of his pay that way. He just loved quarters so much, getting them and spending them. In fact, the only one he wouldn't part with was a two-headed one, 1943 on one side, 1960 on the other, that came from a Baltimore swap meet with a certificate of authenticity signed by nobody I ever heard of, but still. Curdy! This startled me, making me cough after a sharp inhale brought spray disinfectant into my throat. <coughs> yeah, boss, I sputtered turning my head to the open door of the closet-sized office behind me. Get that box of crowns for the one-pins to Dylan back. Almost tournament time. Billy, my boss, didn't hear me say, okay, because I dropped the aerosol can on the counter at the same time. But he did see me move from behind the shoe rental kiosk and grab the ratty-tatty cardboard box that had been in the storage locker out back since last year's event. My route to behind the lanes where the pins get reset was short and sweetened by my tiny, cute, curdy grunts as I maneuvered the musty cardboard container to keep the bottom from bursting before reaching my destination. Well, I could hike the trail blindfolded if I had to. I could map it by familiar scents like the oily lubricant dampness of the ball return chute and the tangy lemon wood polished surface of lane number eight, the one on the right end of the building, finishing at the ever-present tuna sandwich smell of my buddy and co-worker Dill's lunch sack, always sitting on a metal shelf and back for easy access any time of the day or night. Hey, Dill, I barked. Ninety minutes to tourney time. Better get the crowns on the one-pins. I dropped the box with a clatter onto the lower shelf just below Tuna Sandwich Junction. The bowling tournament was held annually to raise money for playground equipment at Three Hills Park in the middle of town. Okay, two hills and a mound. So far, monkey bars, a swing set, and a big plastic looping slide had been purchased and placed. The fundraiser had barely existed here at Billy Bowl and Pool Parlor since the early 70s, but in 1982, four years ago, it morphed into the majestic king of Worcestershire County Battle Royale Bowling Championship. Complete with a throne the local community theater donated after their lackluster Camelot to use for pictures of the winner, and the aforementioned one pins decked out with glittery plastic party favor crowns, which surprisingly did not shatter no matter how hard contestants threw the ball down the alley. Their indestructibility helped the tournament in two ways, as using the same crowns over and over saved money, and the challenge to try to destroy them dramatically increased contestant entries from the I'm so macho I just gotta break things contingent in the surrounding area. Dill dropped the remnant of a cigarette on the floor and scrunched it out with a shoe and a sigh. Smoking by the bowlers had been banned inside the building, but Dill didn't bowl, so he was sure the rule didn't apply to him. For Dill, adding the crowns to the one pins would be simple. He already sorted the pins into groups for each of the ten positions in the standard formation, basing his assignment on general pin appearance and number of surface dings. He had even painted the position number on the bottom of the pins using color-coded nail polish. 
I should mention that when he went to the drugstore for more polish, no one ever wondered out loud as to why this burly six-foot-three-inch bearded hulk was buying all those colors of polish, and consequently, he never explained it to anyone. So all Dill had to do was attach the crowns to the one pins, which was a piece of cake, as the crowns were circular with an open top, so they fit over and down to rest on the pin where it widened out. Easy peasy, nice and breezy, he whispered, as the one pin coronation ceremony took place. I leaned against the back wall near the window air conditioning unit. Central air cooled the front, but... There was too much machinery in back, so we had to make do with a constantly dripping old Frigenator AC that barely fit in the window, but at least it cut through enough of the heat to make it bearable. As Dill reached the final few pins, he pulled out a crown different from the others, not in size or weight, but with a half-moon-shaped faux jewel about as big as a golf ball protruding from the top of the crown, giving it more of a tiara sensibility. He showed it to me and noted it was a bit odd that with the size of the jewel it's not heavier and a bit odder still that it appears to glow ever so subtle-like. I suggested it might just be the light and shadows playing on the pin-setting machinery around us. Well, huh, don't remember any breaking. Guess Billy bought a new one. Think I'll save it for the final frame in the championship round. That'll set things off rather nicely. He placed the special one pin on the shelf and took a bite of his tuna sandwich, chewing slowly with a sense of accomplishment for a task well done. I headed back out front with a Camelot throne and attached a few balloons filled from the kids' party helium tank just to make the chair more festive. Then I organized the registration materials, one stack for those pre-registered and another for the last-minute mavericks to come. In another 45 minutes, the contest would start in earnest, so I expected entrants to begin arriving any moment to warm up. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw Billy testing the overhead scorekeeping monitors for each lane, swearing under his breath in lane five as he found a short in the control panel beneath a dark, empty screen. Hey, Billy, I called out. Smack it a couple of times, that's what I do, and it works just fine. Before Billy could answer, or even start smacking the controller, in through the front door came a blast of hot summer air, followed by two strangers, a short, thin man of middle age with sunglasses and a shimmering metal briefcase, followed by a dark-haired, athletic, younger-looking woman carrying a red-and-white leather bowling ball bag. The woman was slightly taller than my six-foot-even stance, something I noticed as she approached the counter, placing the bag on the floor. How much to enter? she asked, while doing a 360 of the lanes area. You want to be king of Worcestershire County bowling champion? I grinned. We never had a woman enter the contest before, but, well, there's no rule against it. It was the 80s. The times, they were a-changing. Yeah, sure. She leaned in and looked me right in the eye. Unless it isn't worth winning. Well, you would get a trophy, a free dinner at Max down the street, a $25 crop-to-shop gift card, and, uh, oh yeah, six car wash coupons at Wishy Wash. That worth it to you? She pulled out a $50 bill from the front pocket of her pale yellow business suit. Will this cover it? Her Aegean sea blue eyes met my speckled hazel gaze. It's only ten. Um, Let me get your change. My mouth was a bit dry. 
To be honest, I hadn't been this close to a woman showing enough interest in me to actually have a conversation in a while. Keep the change, she shrugged. For the kids. Uh, Sign this waiver. I pulled the paper forward. It's single elimination and you'll be paired up in each round if you keep winning until the king is crowned. Or queen. She winked and signed her name. Dandy Lion complete with a petaled flower to dot the eye in dandy. Really? My folks like nature. She grabbed her bag and headed to a bench to await her first lane assignment. During all this, the other stranger stood motionless, his sunglasses reflecting the neon and fluorescent lighting around him. How about you? You gonna bowl? I now said to him. But the man didn't respond. He just turned and followed dandy to the bench, where he sat, and brought the metal briefcase into his lap. All eight lanes of Billy Bowl and Pool Parlor soon filled with sixteen contestants and more than a handful of spectators as tourney time drew closer, and just before 6 p.m., Billy welcomed the crowd, reminded them to tip their servers, and then announced the first pairings for the competition. Dandy's first match was on lane three versus town doctor Freddy Fred Fred. Full name, Alfred Frederick Fred, but come on, you just gotta call him Freddy Fred Fred. The doctor was not much of a bowler, but he and Mrs. Fred had seven kids and felt obligated to help fund the playground equipment out of a sense of civic pride and frequent family use. Dandy bowled just well enough to beat Dr. Fred Cubed, whose best score to date was this one with a 37, so I couldn't judge just how good Dandy might be. Round two brought her to lane six to face high school assistant principal Douglas Hound Doug Dewars, who made no secret of the fact that he only bowled because beer was free to the contestants as long as they remained in the contest. Last year, he drank his way to the finals, but then got sick all over lane four and had to concede when he declared he saw three balls going down the lane at the same time and then passed out. This year, he had promised his fiancée, Linda, to stop drinking after five beers. And so, when he realized that the fifth bottle was empty in the sixth frame against Dandy, he intentionally guttered the rest of the match, moving her to the semifinals without having much to prove talent-wise. I now found myself quietly rooting for Dandy as she moved to lane five, the scoring equipment working now, with no smacking needed, to meet her next challenger, Patrick, Trick for short, oh treat, was an Irish immigrant who for years had driven one of Wicker's four municipal buses, two routes going north-south, two going east-west, and so had plenty of time in the middle of the day to bowl. Unfortunately for him, a recent accident when someone rear-ended his bus had caused him a pinched nerve, severely limiting his otherwise smooth ball-to-lane delivery, with sharp twinges shooting out of nowhere whenever they liked. It got interesting as Strick threw strikes for the first three frames, while Dandy had one lucky strike, a spare, and then missed a 7-10 split, putting her decidedly behind. In the fourth and fifth frames, Trick threw spares, grimacing a couple of times, but then breathing deeply to recover. Dandy threw two more strikes, though her technique was haphazard and spontaneous rather than showing any kind of skill. Regardless, the fact that the first woman to enter the tourney was advancing had begun to gather energy, and the spectators were paying more and more attention to the stranger. 
Three more frames with dandy and trick matching, each with two more strikes and a spare. Then, in frame nine, there was a gasp as Trick slipped just before releasing the ball and tumbled awkwardly to the floor, groaning in pain, his ball bouncing into the next lane over. After lying there for a good forty-five seconds, and then getting a once-over from Dr. Freddy Fred Fred, see, I told you, and breathing deeply, he called Billy over. I'm done, he whimpered. The crowd let out a disappointed sigh. They all really liked Trick. Then slowly, they began to clap and cheer for Dandy, who was now in the finals. Meanwhile, Sheriff Marshall had handedly trounced his opponents, just like last year and the year before and the years before that. While he thought his jokes were funny, he was very serious about bowling. It was no surprise that he would bowl against Dandy for the championship and title of King of Worcestershire County, as he tended to refer to himself, leaving off any reference to bowling. Biting my lip to keep from grinning too broadly, I came over to Dandy. Um, can I get you a drink? They're free as long as you're still in, and you are, so they are. I heard myself rambling, so I just stopped and waited for Dandy to respond. No, I'm good. She walked back to the bench where the man in sunglasses had sat this whole time, not even shifting in his seat from what I could tell. I watched Dandy whisper something in the man's ear, and then he nodded ever so slightly. All right, ladies and gentlemen. It was Billy at the microphone behind the shoe rental kiosk. It's been a great tournament so far, so please direct your attention to lane number four as we ramp up for our championship match between last year's winner, our very own Sheriff Marshall, cheers from the crowd, and tournament history maker and visitor to our fair city, Dandy Lion. Even more cheers from the crowd. All right, let's bowl. Ladies first. Both the sheriff and Dandy stepped up onto lane four and placed their respective balls in the return rack. Sheriff Marshall's buddies slapped him on the back and he responded a bit nervously while stealing glances at Dandy, who held her hand over the air vent, wicking away perspiration in anticipation of her first roll. I was surprised to notice how Dandy's bowling ball now appeared to reflect a pale green aura as she placed her fingers in the holes and lifted it to under her chin. She took a deep breath, exhaled, and then sent the ball down the lane straight into the regal one pin, knocking it against all the others for a strike, sending the crown flying up into the air, landing in lane five where it spun for several seconds and then just sat there like an exclamation point attached to the moment as the crowd burst into applause. I might have been the only one to notice that she then glanced back at her cohort on the bench, who slightly shook his head before she stepped off to the side to make way for Sheriff Marshall. Calming his nerves, he gripped his ball lightly and took aim, sending it straight and true into the pin formation for his strike. The crowd roared excitedly. They knew they were in for a battle royale. Frame two for Dandy was almost an exact replica of the first, the exception being, when the crown came off the pin, it flew to land in lane three. She retreated to the side after Sunglasses Guy again shook his head. Hmm, now I was intrigued. 
Sheriff Marshall began to perspire almost imperceptibly, and the time he took to prepare his throw signaled that he was feeling the challenge. But as he stepped and released, he proved he was up for it as the ball dispersed all ten pins and tied the score. Over the next four frames, Dandy more or less morphed into a pin-smashing machine, each throw of the ball exactly the same, each result varied only in where the one-pin crown landed. That made six strikes in a row for her. Sheriff Marshall also adopted a facial expression of total concentration, though his throws ran the gamut of wild, hard, spinning from the left, strike, to nuanced, slow rolling from the right, strike. Strike to straight down the middle with a yelp escaping as the ten pin wobbled but remained standing on his first ball in frame six. His second throw secured the spare as he found himself behind for the first time in years. Well, he complained quietly about a tiny blister forming on his throwing hand, then licked his lips and blushed in embarrassment as he gave Dandy the lane. The two bowlers traded strikes for frames seven, eight, and nine and as the crowd began to realize the possibility of seeing a woman throw a perfect game to win the tournament, the air practically crackled with excitement. Sheriff Marshall was loudly quiet, barely breathing, and twitching his index finger on the outside of the holster of his county-issued firearm. Not that he would ever, but maybe, but no. As he waited for Dandy to bowl frame ten. After the pins were set, Dandy took several seconds to study the formation, and with another shake of the head from her companion on the bench, she blinked twice, and then we heard the familiar thud of ball on lane, and then the crash of pins flying. Strike! Two more balls, and the day would be etched in town history forever. Every onlooker was sweating now, some like Sheriff Marshall from desperation, some like me with anticipation. The pins reset, and the guardrail retracted up above, and then, with another look between Dandy and sunglasses, she released the ball. All pins, all down, all cheering and rejoicing. The crowd started chanting, Dandy, Dandy, Dandy. One throw to take it all, and Sheriff Marshall wouldn't need to finish with his tenth, and considering the level of excitement in the place, he wouldn't get the chance. Dill had been keeping an eye on happenings from the back and realized this could be the last pin set. He stepped from the back holding the one pin with a special crown for me to see, then went behind to place it at the front of the pin formation and hit the button to lift them into place. After several anticlimactic years where Sheriff Marshall dominated the field, I could tell Dill finally felt something akin to being part of a momentous event, and like me, he soaked in the vibe hungrily as the pins settled down in the lane and the guardrail rose, revealing the one pin with the special crown, and was the faux jewel now glowing on its own? For all to see... What Dill and the rest of the throng didn't notice, but I did, was the ever-so-slight movement of Mr. Sunglasses as he unlatched the briefcase and nodded to Dandy, who lifted her ball from the rack and took position. All was quiet except for a few throaty gulps layered over the steady hum of the hand dryer as Dandy inhaled, raised the ball, exhaled, took three strides forward and released, thud, Roll, roll, roll. 
Though the speed of the ball was the same, it seemed to travel much slower as the crowd tried to gauge angle and aim, spin and torque, silently vying to be the first one to ascertain the coming strike and perfect game. When the ball finally made contact, the formation exploded, and the one-pin crown, just like its predecessors, flew into the air, this time heading straight toward the top of the lane. As it soared, Mr. Sunglasses, who had spent the entire time hunkered down in back, jumped from his sitting position on the bench, sailed through the crowd, and slid past Dandy onto the top of lane four, while opening the briefcase wide, catching the crown like a major league outfielder snags a high near homer off the left field wall. Then he slammed the briefcase shut and rolled down the lane. But before he came to a stop, he was, in an instant, just not there. No puff of smoke or other magician tricks to signal that he had disappeared. He was just not there. I gasped and then glanced at Dandy, who, like Mr. Sunglasses, was now also just not there. In the years to come, not a lot was said out loud about the 86th King of Worcestershire County Battle Royale Bowling Championship except for the homegrown legend regarding a mysterious woman named after a wildflower who might have bowled a perfect game, but then again she might not have if she just wasn't there, in order to steal a faux-jeweled one-pin crown worth between almost nothing and who knows what, instead of taking the championship prize package including six wishy-washes? And since no one was sure of anything they saw happen, especially the part where she just wasn't there, that meant Sheriff Marshall held on to his title of King of Worcestershire County, bowling champion for those like me who said things under their breath. And life went on for me, Billy, Dill, and the rest of Wicker in the middle of Della Nowhere. <laughs> but the weekly newspaper, the Wicker Basquezette, each year at tournament time would run a story wondering if the mysterious stranger and her sunglasses-wearing companion carrying a metal briefcase might one day come back for a rematch, which, in private, everyone agreed would be something to see. I've got to do you justice to let me love again. Well, friends, that's what happened. And no, I can't explain it, not yet. But the more I think about it, the more I know I need to know. And like my dad used to say, you aren't stupid just because you don't know trigonometry or astrophysics or doing the laundry, for that matter. What makes you stupid is not trying to figure it out. So figure this out. No more friggin' bleach on my work pants. <laughs> he was so right. And that's where you come in. I can't be the only person on Earth who has seen weird, strange, or seemingly impossible things. And I'm asking you to send me stories told in your own words, reasoned through with your own logic, in whatever form you documented it. Police report, journal entry, prose, or poetry. So we can just figure out what the heck is going on. And if you don't have a story, listen anyway. You just might hear something in all this and come up with some answers. Okay, that's it for episode one of Space Croutons. 
This is Curdy Clammerwood saying thanks for listening and keep peace in your heart until our next story time. It's Space Croutons. We think. Get your space suit on. It's pink. We're triple cute. On that you can rely. And once you've tossed your salad in your flying saucer, it's valid to add Space Croutons for lunch. With Neil Diamond, Lucy in the sky. I love Neil Diamond, Lucy in the sky. No, not Neil Diamond. With space croutons. Space croutons is a work of original fiction. Similarities to persons, situations, or events, real or fictional, is coincidental and unintentional. Created and written by Jerry, Jace, John, Christine, Della, and Jeff Goodson. Episode one story, original music, recording, and production by Jeff, featuring the voice talents of Jeff. Entire work, copyright 2020, by Jeff, John, Jerry, Della, Christine, and Jace Goodson. This has been a Good Witch Audio production.